Thank you all for joining us this morning and welcome to Central Presbyterian Church. I'd like to welcome you to our Vocare seminar series. The word Vocare comes from the Latin word meaning to call. And the purpose of this ongoing series, which takes place every Sunday at 10, is to examine the cultural opportunities and challenges that lie before us and how we can faithfully engage in the calling that God has placed on each and every one of our lives. And this morning, we're very pleased to have with us Bishop N.T. Wright, who currently is the professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's College in St. Andrews, Scotland, and priorly, uh, formerly served as the Bishop of Durham from 2003 to 2010. Tom Wright has become a great friend of mine and of this church. When I first came to Central in August of 2011, I received an email from a pastor friend in San Francisco, and he said that Tom Wright had just written a new book, Simply Jesus, and was looking to do a book tour across the United States. He was going to speak at this particular church in San Francisco, but HarperCollins, the publisher, was looking for a venue in New York City. So this pastor friend reached out that first week on the job for me and asked, would you be willing to let N.T. Wright give a lecture on his new book at Central? And I thought about that for about two seconds <laughs> and said, absolutely. And so it's been a great joy in the years since for my wife Ashley and I to get to know and befriend Tom and Maggie. And it is a thrill to have Tom here today to lead us in this seminar, which will be on sacred space in the secular city. So please join me in welcoming N.T. Wright. Thanks, Jason. It's a joy to be with you again this morning. Lovely sunny day in New York. We've had a snowy spring in Scotland, and it's nice to find some uh, the beginning of, of, of warm weather here. But uh, thank you for the invitation to speak on this very exciting topic at this exciting time for you. Um, Maggie, who is going to join us at 11, I think she has heard me speak about this topic before, and uh, that's fine. Um, but we've enjoyed being part of the extended family uh, uh, here at Central Presbyterian Church over some years. I'd forgotten until Jason reminded me that it was uh, 2011. And it's a treat to be back here again. Let me say, it's a sign of happier ecumenical times. A hundred years ago, an Anglican bishop would never have been invited to speak here, and if invited, would certainly have refused. So... Uh, um, <laughs> It's, it, it, you know, there are all sorts of good things happening in the wider church, and this is one sign of that. Jason's asked me to speak about the notion of sacred space and the implications of that for what's happening here at Central. Now, if you knew my background, you might suppose that I grew up familiar with the idea of sacred space, but actually I didn't. My family worshipped in a church which was built in something like the 8th or the 9th century, but we just took that for granted and nobody ever drew my attention to the spiritual significance of that. My grandfather was Archdeacon of Lindisfarne, Holy Island, where Aidan and Cuthbert had launched the English Celtic Church. But I just took that for granted as part of the history. I didn't think about it as sacred turf, even though it was called Holy Island. And when in my teens my faith came alive in new ways through the evangelical message of Scripture Union, I was drawn into an implicitly Protestant world where you could pray to God anywhere at any time. And part of the point was you didn't have to be in church. You could be out for a walk. You'd be climbing a tree anywhere. And the idea of some places or times being special would have appeared to threaten the much-cherished intimacy and immediacy of practicing God's presence in every place. 
I went on to study the Bible. I was ordained in the lovely chapel of Merton College, Oxford, but I still had no idea about sacred space. I had an aunt who was an Anglican nun, my father's older sister. And when we visited her, we always used to comment on how when you went through the gate, through the high wall into Fairacre's convent, um, you found a peace and calm and a tranquility. And we always used to comment on that, but we never really stopped to think, why is that? What's going on here? And in fact, if somebody had suggested to me that one place might be more sacred in some sense than another, I would have thought that should be ruled out by what Jesus says in John 4, that you won't worship God on this mountain or that mountain because the Father seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth. That was the central message. And you can do that anywhere. So how did I change my mind? In the 1980s, I began to realize that my faith up to that point had been strongly dualistic with a strong split of heaven and earth. And this was challenged head on by all sorts of things, but not least, I had to write the Tyndale commentary on Colossians. And if you know Colossians, you'll know that that confronts you with the fact of Jesus as the Lord of the whole world, not just a spiritual or heavenly bit of it. And around the same time, I had some strange experiences of sacred space in unexpected places, rather like Lucy first stumbling through the wardrobe in Narnia. I'll just describe one of these experiences, show you what I mean. When we lived in Montreal, my oldest son went to a school which had earlier expanded its premises by purchasing a redundant United Church across the street. They didn't use it as a chapel or any such thing. It functioned as a very secular assembly hall and had done for years. It was a space for music and theater and graduations and that kind of thing. And there was no sign of its former use. One evening, my son, who was then aged about 10, was playing the clarinet in a cheerfully chaotic student jazz concert. And we trooped in with 100 or two other parents and supporters, all very chatty and jolly for this very secular evening. And as I walked in, and I don't really know how to describe this, I was greeted by Jesus. I felt his presence. He was there. And we took our seats, and the music began, and it was a bit raucous, nothing spiritual or prayerful at all. And I sat there thinking, does anyone else feel this? Has anyone else realized who is here, whose building this is? And the joke for me at the time was that this had been a united church, which in Canada then, and I fear still, was something of a byword for liberal revisionism. But clearly, though I didn't have language for it, Jesus had been invoked there and worshipped there and adored there, and there he still was. And make of that what you will. I didn't know what to make of it at the time. But as you see, it made a deep impact on me. That's 30 years ago, and I remember it as if it was last week. Now, life was, and still is, very busy, and I didn't have time to think that through or read books about sacred space or anything like that. But this prepared me for another more predictable experience I had on Good Friday in 1989 when I went for the first time to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And there, and then in Galilee a few weeks later, there was no question, whatever theology of sacred space you have or don't have, the sense of Jesus' presence was palpable, to me at least. And in that place, it suddenly made sense to think that the hopes and fears of all the world, and indeed the pain and tears of all the world, might actually be concentrated on one spot, on the one man who lived and died and rose again there. That's a whole other story. But then, in Jerusalem too, I first began to see the biblical clue 
that I would now regard as the intellectual starting point for understanding sacred space. You could begin all the way back with Moses being told to take his shoes off because he's standing on holy ground. And then after the Exodus, that's where the tabernacle is constructed and that's where the pillar of cloud and fire first come to join the party, as it were. But coming forward into the later Jewish period, you have the temple in Jerusalem and you have the Psalms. And the Psalms say again and again that the creator of the universe has decided for some reason to take up permanent residence on this little hill just down the road. It, when you're in Jerusalem, you can't sing that as a metaphor. You have to, I've chosen Jerusalem. This is where I want to live. That's what the psalm says. All our Western post-enlightenment instincts and the Protestant instincts which surreptitiously fund them rebel against any such idea. Surely all that stuff stopped when the temple was destroyed. And surely to go back there would lead to idolatry or even Protestant instincts to Roman Catholicism or something like it. So you can see, should we go there? However, as many scholars, both Jewish and Christian, have been exploring in recent years, the whole biblical narrative is not about how humans can leave this stupid old world of space, time, and matter and go off to a supposed spiritual heaven. You go to the first century looking for somebody who says that. It's Plutarch, not Paul. Plutarch, the middle Platonist, a priest in the shrine at Delphi. He talks about our souls being exiled from our true home in heaven and longing to go back there. Many Western Christians think that's Christianity. It isn't. It's Platonism. The Bible story is how the creator makes a world, a heaven plus earth reality, in order that he may dwell there with his human creatures. Genesis 1 is a statement of intent, a statement which is temple-shaped, heaven plus earth, with an image at its heart. Figure it out. Read John Levinson or John Walton or Greg Beale or any one of the number of writers. If you don't have a bibliography on that and want to follow it up, email Jason Healy, email me, and I'll send you my bibliography on the subject. <clears throat> There's some very good stuff. By the end of Exodus, we get the point. The narrative arc runs from Genesis 1 to Exodus 40. The tabernacle evokes Genesis 1 just as Genesis 2 anticipates the promised land, because the tabernacle is the microcosm, the little world. It is a small working model of the new creation, of God's statement of future intent, as in Ephesians 1. Paul says the Messiah, uh, God is going to sum up in the Messiah all things in heaven and on earth to bring the whole creation together. Ephesians is all about the new temple. And the tabernacle is then saying, this is what God wants to do with the whole creation. Heaven plus earth, with humans at the middle of it, and God's glory dangerously dwelling there with them. Therefore, Israel is called to live with the hope that one day, not only the tabernacle or temple, but actually the whole creation, heaven and earth, will be full of the divine power and glory as the waters cover the sea. Therefore, holy places are not a retreat from the world or to be idolized as such. They are begi the beginning of God's advance into the world. And from the tabernacle, there's obviously a straight line onto Solomon's temple with all its ambiguity and tragedy. And also John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. And then to Revelation 21, the dwelling of God is with humans. This is temple theology. 
This is about inaugurated eschatology, about God's intention for the future starting to be realized in the present. I've often summarized the doctrine of justification by saying that God intends to put the whole world right at the end, and having launched that in Jesus, he puts people right in the present so that they can be part of his putting right intention for the whole creation. And the same is true when we see about God's plan to renew the whole creation and fill it with his loving presence. Having launched that project in Jesus, he fills people with his spirit in the present, not so that they can escape the world, but so that they can be models and agents of God's plan for the whole creation. As I was saying yesterday to some of you, one of my favorite passages for this is Psalm 72. Here is what the king has to do to do justice and mercy, especially for the weak and the vulnerable and the orphan and the widow, so that God's glory may fill the whole earth. Just as the king builds the temple so that God's glory may dwell there, the king does justice and mercy and wisdom in the world so that God's glory may dwell in all creation. That's at the heart of biblical theology. So where might this all take us in terms of a theology of sacred space in general and the possibility and the challenge of sacred space in the world today, in New York today? The overall point I want to make, and it's really exciting to be able to make it in a place like this, is that church buildings, though they can often be idolized and treated as though they were the reality to which in fact they are the signpost, they nevertheless are signposts. They do point to that reality. It's easy for us Platonized Westerners to imagine that a church building is at best an escape hatch from the world. You walk in off the street and suddenly you're not in New York anymore. You're in some sort of spiritual space. Absolutely wrong. I mean, if, if that's what you need, maybe God in his grace will enable you to sense it like that too. But that's not the point. A church building is an anticipation an ambiguous anticipation, but an anticipation nonetheless of God's desire to be known and loved on every square inch of creation. A church building is a bridgehead into the world, not an escape hatch away from the world. And therefore, the more that church building can point to the eventual goal of God's glory filling the whole creation, the better. And that's why the great traditions of church building have been what they have been. Take first the early church practice of building churches on top of pagan shrines. People are sometimes shocked when they realize that that's like every Christmas in some British newspaper, some clever secular journalist points out that Christmas trees are a pagan symbol, as though that somehow falsifies the Christian gospel. That's the whole point, guys. Paganism at its best looks at the power and the forces in the world and says there must be something going on and the Christians say, yeah, we'll tell you what it is that's going on. There is a creator who loves the world and is rescuing and renewing it. So we can take those symbols, like Paul says, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. I had an email the other day, this is an aside, but kind of an odd one, from somebody in America, of course, telling, <laughs> most of my correspondents come from America, um, telling me that I shouldn't use the word Easter because that is 
derived from a pagan world for some sort of spring festival. Now, this guy was from some church, I forget happily where, but there was a, there was a website address at the bottom and I clicked on it and it had the church's schedule for, schedule, sorry, for, for, for worship times and all that. And it had the daily list, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And first I, I looked at that and I thought, do you know what the words Sunday and Monday mean and Saturday and, and Thursday? But then I saw particularly that at the top of the list, to indicate what happened on the first day of the week, it's, it abbreviated the days of the week, and it said, Sun Worship. <laughs> and so I emailed him back, and I say, well, since I see that you're Sun Worshippers, perhaps there isn't a problem here. <clears throat> anyway. But you see, our Western dualism shies away from the idea of worshipping God on ground where Mithras or Caesar or Thor or whoever had been worshipped. If you go to Rome, you'll see the Church of San Clemente, St. Clements, is a multi-layered church. And if you go down through the different layers in history, down the stairs, eventually you get to the old Mithraeum at the, at the bottom. Because it's basically saying, Jesus is Lord of the whole world. We are not escaping from the world. We are reclaiming it. Pagan worship, and this is a Colossians point again, pagan worship is a parody of the truth. It takes some element in the good creation and absolutizes it. And to worship Jesus instead is to celebrate the goodness of creation. In every Eucharist, we are trumping the old corn kings and Bacchus the wine god as well with the self-giving life and love of creation's true Lord. And so by putting a church like this on a great street like this, the builders and you, the restorers, are saying that Jesus belongs in the high street, not down some dark back alley. Of course, he's down the dark back alleys as well. That's fine. But there are new challenges on the high street, and you must be prepared to meet them. Indeed, staking a claim to such a place is to invite such challenges. But this is where the gospel belongs. And that's why church buildings have traditionally symbolized that joining of heaven and earth, which I remind you is a very dangerous thing. Don't, this is why, after the construction of the tabernacle, the very next thing you get in the way that Torah is shaped, the first five books, is Leviticus. Because if God's going to come and live in your midst, you need some pretty stringent health and safety rules for how to handle that. And it's, co it's called the sacrificial system. Try reading the Pentateuch like that, and you'll suddenly see it makes sense. But so... Church buildings have symbolized the joining of heaven and earth, which is why we have worship and the Eucharist and so on as part of our both health and safety rules and celebrations of God's presence. So this brings us from the question of place, of where, to the question of sacred space as a subcategory of how we understand the theology, the sociology, the cultural symbols. Symbol, symbolism and significance of buildings in general. I was in Romania the other day doing some lectures in Cluj in northwestern Romania, and they've still got so many of these old brutalist buildings, these blocks of apartments and so on, in which people were shoved as so many dehumanized units. The buildings that you live in or work in or visit say a great deal about who you are, and they say something to the people about Okay, you're going to live here, so this is the kind of human you're going to have to be or become. Often those can be dehumanizing. Sometimes, as all architects or wise architects know, buildings can be humanizing. They can lift up your head and your spirits and so on. Good architecture does that. Now, churches are kind of that plus all the Christian significance. 
often with great sophistication, old church buildings, which today's casual functionalism ignores at its peril. So how do buildings speak of heaven and earth coming together? The Eastern Orthodox do it horizontally. If you've ever been to an Orthodox church, uh, it works horizontally with a screen, and earth is the bit where the people stand, and then there's a screen covered with the icons of the saints who are in heaven and through whom we can approach heaven, and then heaven is the altar at which the priests celebrate the liturgy. And again, many people's Protestant hackles think, well, what on earth's going on here? But actually the way it works is very interesting because when the priest comes out with, or the deacon comes out with the gospel book, it's coming from heaven to earth so that earth can celebrate the good news. And when the sacrament comes out, it's brought out from heaven to earth. I was once in the Russian Orthodox convent on the Mount of Olives on Holy Saturday, and the priest kept coming out of heaven with the incense, walking around briskly, shouting, Christos was crazy, Christos, Christ is risen, Christ is risen. And everyone, yeah, risen indeed. This sense of the message of heaven coming and infusing and inhabiting earth, transforming earth, very, very powerful, architecturally, liturgically, symbolically. Now, in Western churches, we've sometimes done it with that horizontal axis, axis with a sense of um, either an altar or whatever, a sanctuary, an inner sanctuary, and different people worry about that different ways. But often we've built Gothic cathedral-type buildings, as this is a neo-Gothic building itself, where the point is vertical that the building is far too high to make sense as a place of human activity. You know, we don't need all that space to live in, but it symbolizes the fact that us humans are called to share worship space with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, which is what we say in the Eucharist anyway. And the idea of sharing the angelic liturgy goes right back to the Psalms and is there in a lot of the Jewish writings contemporary with the New Testament and is then picked up when Paul talks about now being seated in heavenly places with Christ and so on. So how do we do that sharing of the space? The answer is, of course, through music. One of the things that's always excited me about Central is this sense of tapping into the rich musical heritage of New York City and the way in which you're turning that into vehicles of praise and worship. Because when you make music, and especially when you sing, and you would perhaps expect me as an Anglican to say, please, especially when you sing the Psalms, there are great ways of singing the Psalms. Please do that more and more. Or when you use some of the music that was written specially for the great Gothic buildings, I'm thinking of the works of Tallis and the other masters of the English Renaissance, the music soars up and it symbolizes the fact that you're inhabiting the space where the angels are singing. Of course, it may not always feel like that if the choir is singing out of tune or whatever, um, <laughs> but that is the theory, that's the framework for what we're trying to do. That's why I'm excited about the developments here, not least the organ. Yeah, you need an organ to enable the congregation to relax and join in this worship. Now, another great thing that churches have done down the centuries, and I hadn't realized Central was doing this until I got here a couple of days ago, saw the brochure, then went up on the roof and saw it yesterday, to ring bells. 
Sometimes newcomers to English towns and villages and city centers complain about the noise of those church bells waking me up on a Sunday morning. You know. that, that's like buying a house beside a farm and then complaining that, complaining that the cows are mooing too loudly. Um, pe people do that too. Oh, let's go and live in the country. And then writing to the local council to complain that the rooster was cock-a-doodle-doing at four o'clock. That's what they do, guys, you know. Um, Church bells offer an ancient haunting message. And even when people couldn't put into words what that message is, they often find it evocative. Simply chiming the hours and the quarters. I'm not sure if the bells here are going to strike the hours and the quarters. But if you do that, that can be important because one of the church's primary roles is to remind the world what time it is in all sorts of ways. And just to do that symbolically keeps that sense alive. So sacred space properly used creates contexts for the gospel in the heart of the world that is supposedly secular but actually often ready for something deeper. A colleague of mine once worked in a village parish in the west of England where the tower of the little ancient church where he was the minister stood on a prominent hill where you could see it from a nearby highway. He used to get letters and messages from people who'd just driven by, families, truck drivers, whatever, who said that just seeing the church there on the hill had reminded them of deeper truths to which they needed to pay attention. Now, you could explain that as a sort of atavistic folk memory of distant culture, and perhaps that is indeed part of how it works. But once you get to grips with the biblical theology of sacred space, I think there's much more going on. That is a sense that God is claiming not just those few square yards, but actually the whole creation. So here on a world-famous avenue in a world-famous city, a great cathedral-like building is a gift to be cherished. I, I, I do find myself delighted that this building is referred to from its early days as a cathedral. The cathedral, as you know, is where a bishop has a cathedra, a, a, a throne. That's the definition of a cathedral. So what's a Presbyterian building doing being a cathedral? But So maybe it's a metaphor. But um, you know that colleague of mine had a lovely cartoon in, in her office, a priest in Cambridge. Um, which was of a bishop visiting a convent and the mother superior uh, saying, Bishop, what are we going to do? Uh, we've got Death Watch Beetle in the roof timbers. And the bishop says, it might help to think of it as a metaphor. And <laughs> actually, no, it probably wouldn't, but there we are. Um, so this is a gift to be cherished because it's a sign to the world around so that the casual shopper or the cab driver doing a quick U-turn or the homeless man wandering by or the young executive on the way to the office, they may all just be reminded of the truth which nobody ever quite forgets, that we humans are called to bear God's image and that heaven and earth are made for one another and that one day this is going to be reality. We often say in Britain that our cathedrals function like the Athenian altar to the unknown God. Many walk by and wonder, they're not sure what it's all about, or they come in and look around, sometimes with an inarticulate sense that something's going on here which might just offer the hope of healing and solace and a sense of direction. In our often over-rationalized world, some people then want to put up little signs in churches and cathedrals with biblical verses or helpful hints. But actually, that's a mistake. That ignores how sacred space actually works. The building itself 
will speak to people, as architects will tell you. Any building which becomes a place of prayer has the capacity to speak like this. A Christian home, which has been a place of love and prayer and welcome, can do this too. But buildings which are designed prayerfully and consecrated prayerfully to embody, embody and symbolize the truth of the gospel, of the coming together of heaven and earth through the redeeming love of God in Jesus' Son, can and will do it in the way that great art always does, in its own language and with its own profound effect. You don't need always to be adding words. That's a kind of modern, rationalistic, nervous tick, which, of course, people like me who make my living by words are always liable to fall into. Now, there are, of course, buildings, including, alas, some churches whose architecture has a negative impact. I think of one in the English Midlands where somebody told me before I was visiting, uh, when you look at the church from the outside, it'll say to you, I shouldn't come in here if I were you. And when you go inside, it'll say, there you are, told you so. And, uh, <laughs> And he was right. This was a, a deeply, badly designed building. That can be the case. But I know of many others, thank God, which do mysteriously draw you in, which welcome you, and which gently suggest at certain points, you might want to pause and say a prayer here without even words telling you, just a sense. I've seen this happen to people. If you've ever been to the island of Iona off the west coast of Scotland, the great abbey there, Every corner, every stone seems to be saying, just pause and be still and pray. Of course, it depends on the building being open. That's tricky in a city. Depends on having, having properly trained people to staff it, appropriate security systems and so on. I don't know how that's going to be practical for you here at Central, how it would work. But in some city churches I know, they have a rotor of trained volunteers available not only for security, but so that there are people who, if somebody comes in and wants to talk, not to force anything on people, but if they see somebody maybe in distress or whatever, they'll be there just to help and, and provide whatever is needed. Though, again, it's often the building that does the talking. Now, I do want to say briefly what sacred space is not. It's not a bit of sympathetic magic. I've taken part in the consecration of churches and other buildings. There's good wisdom and practice there, but it doesn't work automatically. Think back to Lucy in the wardrobe in Narnia again. It's possible for many people to blunder into the wardrobe and find that it's just a wardrobe. Many will look and look but never see, but I've observed down the years that sacred space can still work, like the wardrobe, for people who aren't expecting it often. I recall a young man with no overt space no, of a faith who walks into a cathedral and then kept coming back. We, he would park his wife and the kids in the park to play on the swings and so on. He would sneak off and sit in the cathedral and he had no words for why he did that. He just knew it was a, a good and healing place to be. And I remember another time when one of my daughters, who was in her very much, I'm a secular city kid, dad, so please don't talk to me and my friends about religion mode. Um, she brought three of her friends up to stay with us for the weekend, and they went and visited Durham Cathedral, because they'd none of them, except my daughter, been there before. It was pouring with rain, so they went into cathedral, and very much, so, oh, just tourist. The choir was rehearsing for Evensong, and one of these uh, young ladies suddenly dissolved into floods of tears without knowing why. And when they came back uh, for supper that evening, all they wanted to talk about is, what's going on in that building? Why does it have that effect? Ah, now we're talking. These, these stories could be multiplied many times. 
And we remind ourselves they could also be matched by stories of other people who go into the same building and come out with no apparent effect, or worse, those who go in as professionals, even religious professionals, and allow familiarity to breed contempt. Warning sign. Don't expect that the work you're doing, which is a real sign of God's coming kingdom, will go ahead without attacks. From the senior leadership down, you need to be prepared for that. Attacks at every level. And those of us who care about what's going on here need to be committed for, to praying for your safety and wisdom. Because, to repeat, sacred space doesn't work automatically. And there are real tragedies when people who have loved a particular building come to love the building more than the truth which it embodies. There are temptations to idolatry at every level. The greater the good, as always, the greater the temptation. And there have always been seasons in the church's life when it seems as though iconoclasm is the only way. Though often, as in England's Puritan period, this picks up a darker energy from existing social and cultural tensions. I, I sense a whole footnote coming on, and I'm not going to go there. Um, so the antidote to idolatry is not to escape the world. That merely leaves the pagan deities ruling the roost while we escape. The antidote is sacred space of all kinds. The sacred space we make in our homes when we pray and love and welcome and celebrate God's goodness. The sacred space we make in our cities when we put the vision of Psalm 72 into practice at every level. The sacred space we make with our art and our music when we use our creative talents to the glory of God. And when families and justice makers and culture makers and beauty creators all come together to worship in a place. They bring all that sacredness with them. And the place itself, this place itself, becomes sacred too. Not as a cold, detached shrine, but as a place where, in T.S. Eliot's words, prayer has been valid. I remember when I first read that, being shocked. Surely prayer is valid everywhere. Well, yes. But as we live between Easter and the final new creation, it seems to be the case that when God's people have prayed in a particular place for many years, there is an ease, a naturalness about prayer in that place, which you may not find elsewhere. And so all this is to say, to conclude, church buildings ought to be modeling and proclaiming the fact that the gospel of Jesus is public truth. We've been browbeaten by secularism for long enough. Many Christians have retreated into the private world where the secularists want us to go and hide. The world in which we might indeed build prayer spaces, but we would simply see them as places of escape. They're not. They are signs of hope and outward-looking theology and mission. They belong on the theological map Paul draws in Romans 8 when he speaks of Christians' inheritance in terms of the whole new creation. The inheritance is not heaven. The inheritance is the new heavens and new earth. Otherwise, we play right into the secular post-enlightenment narrative in which the implicit theology of place was ousted so that, as many have found to their cost, place simply becomes commodity or investment, a mere pragmatic convenience. No, the whole world is God's world. And actually, if Paul is right, the whole world is now God's holy land. And every place of prayer not least when that prayer is the inarticulate groaning of which Paul speaks. Every place of prayer is a sign that every place will finally be claimed as God's promised domain. 
So, the biblical theme of tabernacle and temple points forward to Jesus and the Spirit in the New Testament, not in order to say that, okay, we can now forget holy space and place. No, to fulfill it. We are creational monotheists, not platonic dualists. That's why, unlike the single shrine in the Old Testament, we have built more and more and more places of worship to declare to the whole world that Jesus is Lord, to encourage more and more individuals and communities to pray and praise and worship and witness. Thank God for the holistic vision of Scripture, for the holistic salvation in Jesus and the Spirit, for the holistic hope of new creation, for the holistic mission of a strategic church, a holy place to symbolize God's claim on the whole city and a sacred place to symbolize and embody God's desire to fill all creation with his glory. Thank you very much. Thank you.